Phoenix Theater and Arts Company's audio drama series presents Francis Hodgson Burdett's The Secret Garden in five parts, adapted and directed by Jenna Isabella. For past episodes, upcoming events, and other information, make sure to visit our website at phoenixtheaterartsco.com. That's theater with an R-E. Without further ado, we give you The Secret Garden, Part 5. Dear listener, we're nearly at the end of our story now. Colin was improving with the magic of the garden. And so had you, really. And when we returned to the house after that first afternoon in the garden, we found that Dr. Craven had been waiting some time. Colin was brought back to his room and the poor man looked over him seriously. You should not have stayed so long. You must not overexert yourself. I am not tired at all. It has made me well. Tomorrow I am going out in the morning, as well as in the afternoon. I'm not sure that I can allow it. I'm afraid it would not be wise. It would not be wise to try to stop me. I am going. What are you looking at me for? I'm thinking that I'm rather sorry for Dr. Craven. So am I. He won't get Mistlethwaite at all. Now I'm not going to die. I'm sorry for him because of that, of course, but I was thinking just then that it must have been very horrid to have to be polite for ten years to a boy who was always rude. I would never have done it. Am I... Rude? If you had been his own boy and he had been a slapping sort of man, he would have slapped you. But he daren't. No, he daren't. Nobody ever dared do anything you didn't like because you were going to die and things like that. It was such a poor thing. But I am not going to be a poor thing. I won't let people think I'm one. I stood on my feet this afternoon. It is always having your own way that has made you so strange. Am I strange? Yes, very. But you needn't be cross because so am I strange. And so has Ben Weatherstar. But I am not as strange as I was before I began to like people and before I found the garden. I don't want to be strange. I am not going to be. I shall stop being strange if I go every day to the garden. There is magic in there. Good magic, you know, Mary. I am sure there is. So am I. Even if it isn't real magic... We can pretend it is. Something is there. Something. It's magic, but not black. It's as white as snow. We always called it magic, and indeed it seemed like it in the months that followed. The wonderful months. The radiant months. The amazing ones. Oh, the things which happened in that garden. Of course, there must be lots of magic in the world, but people don't know what it is like, or how to make it. Perhaps the beginning is just to say nice things are going to happen, until you make them happen. I am going to try an experiment. And so the next morning, when we went to the secret garden, he sent at once for Ben Weatherstaff. Ben came as quickly as he could and found the young master standing on his feet under a tree and looking very grand, but also very beautifully smiling. Good morning, Ben Weatherstaff. I want you and Dickon and Miss Mary to stand in a row and listen to me, because I am going to tell you something very important. Aye, aye, sir. I am going to try a scientific experiment. When I grow up, I am going to make great scientific discoveries, and I am going to begin now with this experiment. Aye, aye, sir. The great scientific discoveries I am going to make will be about magic. Magic is a great thing, and scarcely anyone knows anything about it, except a few people in old books, and Mary a little, because she was born in India, where there are fakirs. I believe Dickon knows some magic, but perhaps he doesn't know he knows it. He charms animals and people. When Mary found this garden, it looked quite dead. 
Then something began pushing things up out of the soil and making things out of nothing. One day, things weren't there, and another, they were. I had never watched things before, and it made me feel very curious. Scientific people are always curious, and I am going to be scientific. I keep saying to myself, what is it? What is it? It's something. It can't be nothing. I don't know its name. So I call it magic. The magic in this garden has made me stand up and know I am going to live to be a man. I am going to make the scientific experiment of trying to get some and put it in myself and make it push and draw me and make me strong. I don't know how to do it, but I think that if you keep thinking about it and calling it, perhaps it will come. If you keep doing it every day, as regularly as soldiers go through drill, we shall see what will happen and find out if the experiment succeeds. You learn things by saying them over and over and thinking about them until they stay in your mind forever. And I think it will be the same with magic. If you keep calling it to come to you and help you, it will get to be part of you and it will stay and do things. I once heard an officer in India tell my mother that there were fakirs who said words over and over thousands of times. Do you think the experiment will work? I, that I do. It will work the same as the seeds do when the sun shines on them. It'll work for sure. Shall we begin it now? It will be like sitting in a sort of temple. I'm rather tired and I want to sit down. <laughs> you mustn't begin by saying you are tired. You might spoil the magic. That's true. I must only think of the magic. The creatures have come. They want to help us. Now we will begin. Shall we sway backward and forward, Mary? As if we were dervishes. I cannot do no swaying backward and forward. I've got the rheumatics. The magic will take them away. But we won't sway until it has done it. We will only chant. The sun is shining. The sun is shining. That is the magic. The flowers are growing. The roots are stirring. That is the magic. Being alive is the magic. Being strong is the magic. The magic is in me. The magic is in me. It is in me. It is in me. It's in every one of us. It's in Ben Weatherstaff's back. Magic. Magic. Come and help. Now I am going to walk around the garden. The magic is in me. The magic is making me strong. I can feel it. I can feel it. It seemed very certain that something was upholding and uplifting him. He sat on the seats in the alcoves, and once or twice he sat down on the grass, and several times he paused in the path and leaned on Dickon. But he would not give up until he had gone all around the garden. When he returned to the canopy tree, his cheeks were flushed, and he looked triumphant. I did it. The magic worked. That is my first scientific discovery. What will Dr. Craven say? <laughs> he won't say anything, because he will not be told. This is to be the biggest secret of all. No one is to know anything about it, until I have grown so strong that I can walk and run like any other boy. I shall come here every day in my chair, and I shall be taken back in it. won't have people whispering and asking questions. I won't let my father hear about it, until the experiment has quite succeeded. Then sometime when he comes back to Mistlethwaite, I shall just walk into his study and say, Here I am! I am like any other boy! I am quite well, and I shall live to be a man! It has been done by a scientific experiment. He will think he is in a dream. He won't believe his eyes. He'll be obliged to believe them.
Colin continued to practice his magic, getting stronger and stronger, and Dickon and I continued to work in the garden. The secret garden was not the only one Dickon worked in. Round the cottage on the moor there was a piece of ground enclosed by a low wall of rough stones. Early in the morning and late in the fading twilight and on days we did not see him, Dickon worked there planting and tending potatoes and cabbages, turnips and carrots and herbs for his mother. In the company of his creatures he did wonders there and was never tired of doing them it seemed. While he dug or weeded he whistled or sang bits of Yorkshire moor songs or talked to Soot or Captain or the brothers and sisters he had taught to help him. We'd never get on as comfortable as we do if it wasn't for Dickens garden. Anything'll grow for him. His taters and cabbages are twice the size of anyone else's, and they've got a flavour with them as nobody's has. I'd love to go up to the cottage and talk to Mrs. Sowerby and Dickens. As he worked, we exchanged stories of the day and marveled and the flowers and vegetables he grew. All a chap's got to do to make them thrive, mother, is to be friends with him for sure. They're just like the creatures. If they're thirsty, give them drink, and if they're hungry, give them a bit of food. They want to live, same as we do. If they died, I should feel as if I'd been a bad lad and somehow treated them heartless. It was in these twilight hours that Mrs. Sowerby heard of all that had happened at Misselthwaite Manor. At first, she was only told that Mr. Cullen had taken a fancy to going out into the grounds with Miss Mary, and that it was doing him good. And one beautiful still evening, Dickon told the whole story of the secret garden, with all the thrilling details of the buried key the robin and the grey haze which had seemed like deadness and the secret mistress mary had planned never to reveal the coming of dickon and how it had been told to him the doubt of mr colin and the final drama of his introduction to the hidden domain combined with the incident of ben weatherstaff's angry face peering over the wall and mr colin's sudden indignant strength made mrs Sowerby's nice-looking face quite change colour several times my word it was a good thing that little ass came to the manor it's been the making of her and the saving of him, standing on his feet, and we all thinking he was a poor half-witted lad with not a straight bone in him. What do they make of it at the manor? Him being so well and cheerful and never complaining? They don't know what to make of it. Every day that comes around, his face looks different. It's filling out and doesn't look so sharp, and the waxy color is going. <laughs> but he has to do his bit of complaining. What for in Mercy's name? He does it to keep them from guessing what's happened. If the doctor knew he'd found out he could stand on his feet, he'd likely write and tell Mr. Craven. Mr. Collins saving the secret to tell himself. He's going to practice his magic on his legs every day till his father comes back, and then he's going to march into his room and show him he's as straight as other lads. But he and Miss Mary think it's the best plan to do a bit of groaning and fretting now and then to throw folk off the scent. <laughs> <laughs> that pair's enjoying themselves, I'll warrant. They'll get a good bit of acting out of it. And there's nothing children like as much as play acting. Let's hear what they do, Dick and Lad. Mr. Colin is carried down to his chair every time he goes out. And he flies out at John, the footman, for not carrying him careful enough. He makes himself as helpless looking as he can and never lifts his head until we're out of sight of the house. But the trouble is that sometimes they can scarce keep from bursting out laughing. <laughs> when we get safe into the garden, they laugh until they've no breath left to laugh with. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the more they laugh, the better for them. Good, healthy child laughing's better than pills any day of the year. That pair'll plump up for sure. They are plumping up. They're that hungry, they don't know how to get enough to eat without making talk. Mr. Collins says if he keeps sending for more food, they won't believe he's an invalid at all. <laughs> Tell thee what, lad, I've thought of a way to help them. When you go to them in the mornings, you shall take a pail of good new milk, and I'll bake them a crusty cottage loaf, or some buns with currants in them, same as you children like. 
nothing so good as fresh milk and bread. Then they could take off the edge of their hunger while they were in their garden and the fine foods they get indoors and polish off the corners. <laughs> Mother, what a wonder you are. You always see a way out of things. Their two young'uns growing fast, and health's coming back to both of them. Children like that feel like young wolves, and food's flesh and blood to them. But they're enjoying themselves, for sure. She was quite right, an uncomfortable, wonderful mother creature, and she had never been more so than when she said our play-acting would be our joy. Colin and I had found it one of our most thrilling sources of entertainment. The idea of protecting ourselves from suspicion had been unconsciously suggested to us first by the puzzled Mrs. Menlock, and then by Dr. Craven himself. Your appetite... Is improving very much, Master Colin. You used to eat nothing, and so many things disagreed with you. Nothing disagrees with me, now that I... At, at least things don't so often disagree with me. It's... It's the fresh air. Well, perhaps it is, but I must talk to Dr. Craven about it. She stared at you as if she thought there must be something to find out. <laughs> I won't have her finding out things. No one must begin to find out yet. Mary, quick, someone's coming. Good morning, Uncle. You stay out in the garden a great deal. Where do you go? I will not let anyone know where I go. I go to a place I like. Everyone has orders to keep out of the way. I won't be watched and stared at. You know that. You seem to be out all day, but I do not think it has done you harm. I do not think so. The nurse says that you eat much more than you ever have done before. Perhaps. Perhaps. It is an unnatural appetite. Mm, I do not think so, as your food seems to agree with you. You are gaining flesh rapidly, and your color is better. Perhaps... perhaps I am bloated and feverish. People who are not going to live are often different. Uh, let me see. Hmm. You are not feverish, and such flesh as you have gained is healthy. If you can keep this up, my boy, we need not talk of dying. Your father will be happy to hear of this remarkable improvement. I won't have him told. It will only disappoint him if I get worse again. And I may get worse this very night. I might have a raging fever. I feel as if I might be beginning to have one now. I won't have letters written to my father. I won't. I won't. You are making me angry. And you know that is bad for me. I feel hot already. I hate being written about and being talked over as much as I hate being stared at. Hush, my boy. Nothing shall be written without your permission. You are too sensitive about these things. You must not undo the good which has been done. Ah, Mrs. Medlock, a moment. The boy is extraordinarily better. His advance seems almost abnormal, but of course he is doing now of his own free will what we could not make him do before. Still, he excites himself very easily, and nothing must be said to irritate him. Colin and I continued our play-acting, and tried to resist eating all the delicious food that was served to us at mealtimes, but we were so hungry. The next day, when Dickon greeted us with fresh cream and currant buns made by Mrs. Sowerby, we could scarcely control ourselves. Mmm. Magic is in your mother, just as it is in you, Dickon. It makes her think of ways to do things. 
nice things. She is a magic person. Tell her we are grateful, Dickon. Extremely grateful. Tell her she has been most bounteous and our gratitude is extreme. Every beautiful morning, the magic was worked by the mystic circle under the plum tree, which provided a canopy of thickening green leaves after its brief blossom time was ended. After the ceremony, Colin always took his walking exercise, and throughout the day he exercised his newly found power at intervals. Each day he grew stronger, and could walk more steadily and cover more ground, and each day his belief in the magic grew stronger, as well it might. He tried one experiment after another, as he felt himself gaining strength, and with the magic in the garden, and the delightful delicacies of Mrs. Sowerby's oven, and continued to grow in health. We even sent her money to pay for the extra resources. Mrs. Medlock and Dr. Craven were utterly mystified that we seem to be growing but eating very little that came out of the Misselthwaite kitchens. They are eating next to nothing. They'll die of starvation if they can't be persuaded to take some nourishment. And yet see how they look. I'm mothered to death with them. They're a pair of young Satans bursting their jackets one day and the next turning up their noses at the best meals Cook can tempt them with. Not a mouthful of that lovely young fowl and bread sauce did they set a fork into yesterday. And the poor woman fair invented a pudding for them. And back it sent. She almost cried. She is afraid she'll be blamed if they starve themselves into their graves. Dr. Craven came and examined Colin carefully. He had been called to London on business and had not seen the boy for nearly two weeks. When young things begin to gain health, they gain it rapidly. The waxen tinge had left Colin's skin and a warm rose showed through it. His beautiful eyes were clear and the hollows under them and in his cheeks and temples had filled out. His once dark, heavy locks had begun to look as if they sprang healthily from his forehead and were soft and warm with life. His lips were fuller and of a normal colour. In fact, as an imitation of a boy who was a confirmed invalid. He was a disgraceful sight. Dr. Craven held his chin in his hand and thought him over. I am sorry to hear that you do not eat anything. That will not do. You will lose all you have gained, and you have gained amazingly. You ate so well a short time ago. I told you it was an unnatural appetite. <laughs> what is the matter? It was something between a sneeze and a cough, and it got caught in my throat. Hmm. Well, then. I'll see you tomorrow. <laughs> I couldn't stop myself. It just burst out because all at once I couldn't help remembering that last big potato you ate and the way your mouth stretched when you bit through that thick, lovely crust with jam and clotted cream on it. <laughs> could hear Dr. Craven and Mrs. Menlock talking out in the hallway. Is there any way in which those children can get food secretly? There's no way, unless they dig it out of the earth or pick it off trees. They stay out in the grounds all day and see no one but each other. And if they want anything different to eat from what's sent up to them, they need only to ask for it. <laughs> well, so long as going without food agrees with them, we need not disturb ourselves. The boy is a new creature. So is the girl. She's begun to be downright pretty since she's filled out and lost her ugly little sour look. Her hair's grown thick and healthy looking and she's got a bright color. The glummest, ill-natured little thing she used to be. And now her and Master Colin laugh together like a pair of crazy young ones. Perhaps they're growing fat on that. <laughs> Perhaps they are. Let them laugh.
and the secret garden bloomed and bloomed and every morning revealed new miracles. In the robin's nest there were eggs and the robin's mate sat upon them, keeping them warm with her feathery little breast and careful wings. But even on wet days it could not be said that Colin and I were dull. One morning when the rain streamed down unceasingly and Colin was beginning to feel a little restive as he was obliged to remain on his sofa because it was not safe to get up and walk about, I had an inspiration. Now that I am a real boy, my legs and arms and all my body are so full of magic that I can't keep them still. They want to be doing things all the time. Do you know that when I waken in the morning, Mary, when it's quite early and the birds are just shouting outside, and everything seems just shouting for joy, even the trees and things we can't really hear, I feel as if I must jump out of bed and shout myself. If I did it, just think what would happen. <laughs> The nurse would come running, and Mrs. Medlock would come running, and they would be sure you had gone crazy, and they'd send for the doctor. <laughs> I wish my father would come home. I want to tell him myself. I'm always thinking about it, but we couldn't go on like this much longer. I can't stand lying still and pretending. And besides, I look too different. I wish it wasn't raining today. Colin. Do you know how many rooms there are in this house? About a thousand, I suppose. There's about a hundred no one ever goes into. And one rainy day, I went and looked into ever so many of them. No one ever knew, though Mrs. Benlock nearly found me out. I lost my way when I was coming back, and I stopped at the end of your corridor. That was the second time I heard you crying. A hundred rooms no one goes into? Sounds almost like a secret garden. Suppose we go and look at them. Wheel me in my chair and nobody would know we went. That's what I was thinking. No one would dare follow us. There are galleries where you could run. We could do our exercises. There is a little Indian room where there is a cabinet full of ivory elephants. There are all sorts of rooms. Ring the bell. Rainy days lost their terrors that morning, when the footman had wheeled the chair into the picture gallery and left us two together in obedience to orders. Colin and I looked at each other delighted. As soon as I made sure that John was really on his way back to his own quarters below stairs, Colin got out of his chair. I am going to run from one end of the gallery to the other, and then I will jump and do my exercises. And then we shall look at all these portraits. All these must be my relations. They lived a long time ago. That one, holding the parrot, I believe, is one of my great, 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 great aunts. She looks rather like you, Mary. Not as you look now, but as you looked when you came here. Now you are a great deal plumper and better looking. So are you. <laughs> I'm glad we came. I never knew I lived in such a big, strange old place. I like it. We will ramble about every rainy day. She'll always be finding new strange corners and things. When we returned to Colin's room later that afternoon, I noticed something different. I said nothing, but sat and looked fixedly at the picture of my aunt, smiling over the mantle. I could look at it because the curtain that always covered it had been drawn aside. I know what you want me to tell you. I always know when you want me to tell you something. You are wondering why the curtain is drawn back. I am going to keep it like that. Why? Because it doesn't make me angry anymore to see her laughing. I wakened when it was bright moonlight two nights ago and felt as if the magic was filling the room and making everything so splendid that I couldn't lie still. I got up and looked out of the window. The room was quite light and there was a patch of moonlight on the curtain and somehow that made me go and pull the cord. She looked right down at me as if she were laughing because she was glad I was standing there. It made me like to look at her. I want to see her laughing like that all the time. I think she must have been a sort of magic person, perhaps. You are so like her now that sometimes I think perhaps you are her ghost made into a boy. If I were her ghost, 
My father would be fond of me. Do you want him to be fond of you? He used to hate it when he was not fond of me. If he grew fond of me, I think I should tell him about the magic. It might make him more cheerful. And so the next morning, when the weather was fine and fair, we returned to our secret garden. Dickon and Ben met us, and we worked and Colin continued his magic, walking and running in the garden as never he had before, when suddenly he had a revelation. Mary! Dickon! Just look at me! Do you remember that first morning you brought me in here? Just this minute, all at once, I, I remembered it myself. When I looked at my hand digging with the trowel, and I had to stand up on my feet to see if it was real. And it is real. I I'm well. I'm well. Hi, <laughs> that you are. I'm well. I'm well. I shall live forever and ever and ever. I shall find out thousands and thousands of things. I shall find out about people and creatures and everything that grows, like Dickon. And I shall never stop making magic. I'm well. I'm well. I feel... I feel as if I want to shout out something. Something thankful. Joyful. Colin was looking across the garden at something attracting his attention, and his expression had become a startled one. Who is coming in here? Who is it? The door in the ivied wall had been pushed gently open and a woman had entered. With the ivy behind her and the sunlight drifting through the trees and dappling her long blue cloak and her nice fresh face smiling across the greenery, she was rather like a softly coloured illustration in one of Colin's books. She had wonderful affectionate eyes which seemed to take everything in. All of us, even Ben Weatherstaff and the creatures and every flower that was in bloom, unexpectedly as she appeared, not one of us felt that she was an intruder at all. Dickens' eyes lighted like lamps. It's Mother. That's who it is. I knew you wanted to see her, and I told her where the door was hidden. Even when I was ill, I wanted to see you. You and Dickens and the Secret Garden. I never wanted to see anyone or anything before. Oh, dear lad, you are so like your mother, you made my heart jump. Do you think that will make my father like me? Aye, for sure, dear lad. He must come home. Susan Sorby, look at the lad's legs, will you? It was like drumsticks in stockings two months ago. And I heard folk tell as they were bandy and knock-kneed both at the same time. Look at them now. They're going to be fine, strong lad's legs in a bit. Let him go on playing and working in the garden and eating hearty and drinking plenty of good sweet milk and they'll not be a finer pair in Yorkshire, thank God for it. And me too, Mistress Mary. You're grown near as hearty as our Elizabeth Ellen. I'll warrant you like your mother too. Our Martha told me, as Mrs. Medlock heard, she was a pretty woman. You'll be like a blush rose when you grow up, my little lass, bless thee. Do you believe in magic? I do hope you do. That I do, lad. I never noted by that name. But what does the name matter? Dickon has told me all about your magic in the garden and your pretending in the house. Bless us all. I can see you had a good bit of play acting to do. But you won't have to keep it up much longer. Master Craven will come home. Do you think he will? Why? <sighs> I suppose it'd nigh break your heart if you found out before you told him in your own way. You've laid awake nights planning it. I couldn't bear anyone else to tell him. I think about different ways every day. I think now I just want to run into his room. That'd be a fine start for him. I'd like to see his face, lad. I would at that. He must come back, that he must. You are just what I... what I wanted. I wish you were my mother. 
as well as Dickens's. Oh, dear lad. Your own mother's in this very garden, I do believe. She couldn't keep out of it. Your father must come back to thee. He must. While the secret garden was coming alive, and two children were coming alive with it, there was a man wandering about certain faraway beautiful places in the Norwegian fjords and the valleys and mountains of Switzerland, and he was a man who for ten years had kept his mind filled with dark and heartbroken thinking. He had not been courageous. He had never tried to put any other thoughts in the place of the dark ones. He had wandered by blue lakes and thought them, he had laid on mountainsides with sheets of deep blue gentians blooming all about him and flower breaths filling all the air, and he had thought them. A terrible sorrow had fallen upon him when he had been happy, and he had let his soul fill itself with blackness, and had refused obstinately to allow any rift of light to pierce through. He had forgotten and deserted his home and his duties. When he travelled about, darkness so brooded over him that the sight of him was a wrong done to other people, because it was as if he had poisoned the air about him with gloom. Most strangers thought that he must be either half mad or a man with some hidden crime on his soul. He was a tall man, with a drawn face and crooked shoulders, and the name he always entered on hotel registers was Archibald Craven, Misselthwaite Manor, Yorkshire, England. He had travelled far and wide since the day he saw Mistress Mary in his study and told her she might have her bit of earth. And at the moment when young Master Colin proclaimed, I am going to live forever and ever and ever. Far away on the European continent, something seemed to have been unbound and released in Archibald Craven, very quietly. What is it? I, I almost feel as if I were alive. I do not know enough about the wonderfulness of undiscovered things to be able to explain how this had happened to him. Neither does anyone else yet. He did not understand it at all himself, but the singular calmness remained with him the rest of the evening, and he slept a new reposeful sleep, but it was not with him very long. He did not know that it could be kept. By the next night he had opened the doors wide to his dark thoughts, and they had come trooping and rushing back. He left the valley and went on his wandering again. Slowly, slowly, for no reason that he knew of, he was coming alive with the garden. He did not know when he fell asleep and when he began to dream. His dream was so real that he did not feel as if he were dreaming. He remembered afterward how intensely wide awake and alert he thought he was. He thought that as he sat and breathed in the scent of the late roses and listened to the lapping of the water at his feet, he heard a voice calling. It was sweet and clear and happy and far away. It seemed very far, but he heard it as distinctly as if it had been at his very side. Archie, 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 Archie. Lily! Lily! Lily, where are you? In the garden. In the garden. Uh, in the garden. In the garden? But, but the door is locked and the key is buried deep. 
Archibald Craven sat puzzling at the dream of his late wife calling him to the garden, her garden, locked away from the world, when he suddenly glanced at the letters on the table in front of him. He saw that the one lying at the top of the rest was an English letter and came from Yorkshire. It was directed in a plain woman's hand, but it was not a hand he knew. He opened it, scarcely thinking of the writer, but the first words attracted his attention at once. Dear Sir, I am Susan Sowerby, that made bold to speak to you once on the moor. It was about Miss Mary I spoke. I will make bold to speak again. Please, sir, I would come home if I was you. I think you would be glad to come and... If you will excuse me, sir, I think your lady would ask you to come if she was here. Your obedient servant, Susan Sowerby. I will go back to Miss Othwaite. Yes, I'll go at once. As he travelled back to England and on to Miss Othwaite, he thought to himself, Perhaps I have been all wrong for ten years. Ten years is a long time. It may be too late to do anything, quite too late. What have I been thinking of? Could it be possible that, that Susan Sowerby sees that I may be able to do him good and, and to comfort him? I will go and see her on my way to Misselthwaite. Was it possible that perhaps I, I might find him changed a little for the better and that I might overcome my shrinking from him? Oh, how real that dream had been! How wonderful and clear the voice which called back in the garden in the garden i will try to find the key i will try to open the door i must i don't know why when he arrived at the manor the servants who received him with the usual ceremony noticed that he looked better and that he did not go to the remote rooms where he usually lived attended by pitcher he went into the library and sent for Mrs. Medlock. She came to him somewhat excited and curious and flustered. How is Master Colin Medlock? Well, sir, he's... he's different, in a manner of speaking. Worse? Uh, well, you see, sir, neither Dr. Craven, nor the nurse, nor me can actually make him out. Why is that? To tell the truth, sir, Master Colin might be better, and he might be changing for the worse. His appetite, sir, is past understanding, and his ways... Has he become more... more peculiar? But that's it, sir. He's growing very peculiar when you compare him with what he used to be. He used to eat nothing, and then suddenly he'd begin to eat something enormous. And then he stopped again all at once, and the meals were sent back just as they used to be. You never knew, sir, perhaps, that out of doors he would never let himself be taken. The things we've gone through to get him to go out in his chair would leave a body trembling like a leaf. He'd just throw himself into such a state that Dr. Craven said he couldn't be responsible for forcing him. Well, sir, just without warning, not long after one of his worst tantrums, he suddenly insisted on being taken out every day by Miss Mary and Susan Sowerby's boy Dickon that could push his chair. He took a fancy to both Miss Mary and Dickon, and Dickon brought him his tame animals, and if you credit it, sir, out of doors, he will stay from morning until night. How does he look? If he took his food natural, sir, you'd think he was putting on flesh. But we're afraid it may be a sort of bloat. He laughs sometimes in a queer way when he's alone with Miss Mary. He never used to laugh at all. 
Dr. Craven is coming to see you at once, if you'll allow him. He never was as puzzled in his life. Where is Master Colin now? In the garden, sir. He's always in the garden, though not a human creature is allowed to go near for fear they'll look at him. In the garden. In the garden. He had to make an effort to bring himself back to the place he was standing in, and when he felt he was on earth again, he turned and went out of the room. He crossed the lawn and turned into the long walk by the ivied walls. He knew where the door was, even though the ivy hung thick over it, but he did not know exactly where it lay, that buried key. So he stopped and stood still, looking about him, and almost the moment after he had paused he started and listened, asking himself if he were walking in a dream. <laughs> not so fast, Colin! You can't catch me! <laughs> Over here! What in heaven's name was he dreaming of? What in heaven's name did he hear? Was he losing his reason and thinking that he had heard things which were not for human ears? Was it that the far clear voice had meant? And then the moment came. The uncontrollable moment where the sounds forgot to hush themselves. The feet ran faster and faster. They were nearing the garden door. There was quick, strong, young breathing and a wild outbreak of laughing shouts which could not be contained. And the door in the wall was flung wide open, the sheets of ivy swinging back, and a boy burst through it at full speed, and without seeing the outside had dashed almost into his arms. Mr. Craven had extended them just in time to save him from falling as a result of his unseeing dash against him, and when he held him away to look at him in amazement at his being there, he truly gasped for breath. He was a tall boy and a handsome one. He was glowing with life, and his running had sent splendid colour leaping to his face. He threw the thick hair back from his forehead and lifted a pair of strange grey eyes, eyes full of boyish laughter and rimmed with black lashes like a fringe. It was the eyes that made Mr. Craven gasp for breath. Who? What? Who? This was not what Colin had expected. This was not what he had planned. He had never thought of such a meeting. And yet, to come dashing out, winning a race! Perhaps it was even better. He drew himself up to his very tallest. Mary, who had been running with him and had dashed through the door too, believed that he managed to make himself look taller than he had ever looked before. Inches taller. Father? I'm Colin. You can't believe it. I, I scarcely can myself. I'm Colin. In the garden! In the garden! Yes. It was the garden that did it. And Mary and Dickon. And the creatures. And the magic. No one knows. We kept it to tell you when you came. I'm well. I can beat Mary in a race. I'm going to be an athlete. Aren't you glad, Father? Aren't you glad? I'm going to live! Forever and ever and ever! Take me into the garden, my boy, and tell me all about it. And so they led him in. The place was a wilderness of autumn gold and purple and violet blue and flaming scarlet, and on every side were sheaves of late lilies standing together. Lilies which were white or white and ruby. He remembered well when the first of them had been planted that just at this season of the year their late glory should reveal themselves. Late roses climbed and hung and clustered, 
and the sunshine deepening the hue of the yellowing trees made one feel that one stood in an embowered temple of gold. The newcomer stood silent, just as the children had done when they came into its greyness. He looked round and round. I thought it would be dead. Mary thought so at first, but it came alive. Then they sat down under their tree, all but Colin, who wanted to stand while he told the story. It was the strangest thing he had ever heard, Archibald Craven thought, as it was poured forth in headlong boy fashion. Mystery and magic and wild creatures, the weird midnight meeting, the coming of the spring, the odd companionship, the play-acting, the great secret so carefully kept. The listener laughed until tears came into his eyes. And sometimes tears came into his eyes when he was not laughing. Now it need not be a secret anymore. I dare say it will frighten them nearly into fits when they see me. But I'm never going to get into that chair again. I shall walk back with you, father, to the house. Did you see either of them wear the staff? Aye, I did. Both of them? Both of them. Together? Together, ma'am. Where was Master Colin? How did he look? What did they say to each other? I didn't hear that, only being on the stepladder looking over the wall. But I'll tell thee this. There's been things going on outside as you house people know not about. And what you'll find out, you'll find out soon. Look there, if you're curious. Look what's coming across the grass. <laughs> we could hear Mrs. Menlock shriek from the front lawn when she saw you walking with Uncle Archie, Colin. I will never forget that sound, or that day. Martha, I never knew that my father began his journey home at the same time as my epiphany in the garden. Well, Mrs. Medlock and I may have overheard a story or two after he returned. One thing's for sure and certain. Now the garden has come alive. We'll always keep it alive. And we don't have to keep it a secret anymore. P-Tax Audio Drama Series is a production of the Phoenix Theatre and Arts Company. This week's episode, The Secret Garden, Part 5, was written by Francis Hodgson Burnett, adapted and directed by Jenna Isabella, and edited by Gina Stanton and Jenna Isabella. This episode features the vocal talents of Amanda Booth as Mary Lennox, Gina Stanton as Martha Sowerby, Devin Traeger as Dickin Sowerby, Emma Burke-Kovitz as Colin Craven, Judy Brewster as Mrs. Medlock, Sean Latassa as Ben Weatherstaff and Mr. Pitcher, Jasmine Kanzany as Mrs. Sowerby, Ted Schwartz as Uncle Archibald Craven, John Isabella III as Dr. Craven, and Jenna Isabella as Lily Craven. Original PTAC music by Brian Sanishin. For a full listing of credits, visit us at phoenixtheaterartsco.com. That's theater with an RE. While you're there, please consider clicking the donate link. That would be delightful. Have any comments or questions? Email us at phoenixtheaterartsco at gmail.com or find us on social media. A very special thank you to our Patreon subscribers, with a shout-out to those sitting in the box seats, Ken Shelby, and on-stage seating, Margaret Thurston. 
We couldn't do this without you. Join us next time for American Fairy Tales Part 1.